0: This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hague. The idea that you can't learn from each other is absurd. There is no science of right and wrong. The person who summed up this view most accurately was that famous philosopher Margaret Thatcher. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read?
1: And with the philosopher, Dr. Julian Buggini... Uh, to talk about his new book, "How the World Thinks: A Global History of Philosophy," a global—that's a pretty big sort of a canvas, Julian.
0: It's fairly broad, yes. That's that's—it's not narrow. Let's put it that way. It's
1: not. Um, in the book, and, and we're going to get straight straight into this. In the book, you were uh, you, you suggest that departments of philosophy in in uh, universities really ought to insert that the, the the adjective Western in front of the word philosophy because. There's there's a really narrow focus, and there is there is more to it than that. And I think, in a way, I am probably your ideal reader for this because that that's exactly where I'm coming from. And I do know that it's narrow of me. So I was I was delighted, uh, well, to 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 explore this, and I'd like to explore this a bit more with you. So unpack that. What what's our problem? Why is Western philosophy not to be regarded as, as as the last word.
0: Well, okay, I think the minimal thing is just to call it Western philosophy. I mean, there's Brian Van Norden and Jay Garfield are two comparative philosophers, meaning they work in more than one tradition. And, you know, they've been long sort of like campaigning for philosophy departments to become more global. And they wrote a, a very interesting piece in which they kind of said, look, we kind of give up, but just have the honesty to say this is Western philosophy and, you know qualify in some way. Even that caused a big stink and people said, no, no, no. So so why is it? And when, when you say this to people, I think the typical reaction for people not involved in philosophy is how extraordinary that in this day and age, you know, you can have philosophy departments which are just Western. Isn't that purely scandalous? And I think you've got to be a bit more understanding than that. The point is that philosophy in one sense is a tradition of thought which started in ancient Greece and belongs to the west and other traditions which we call philosophy have different histories and they have different literatures they have different assumptions they have different methods so there is a sense in which these strands are not all doing the same thing but the point is their overlap in terms of their interests and their methods and their assumptions is strong enough that the idea that you can't learn from each other is absurd so sure we're not saying everything should be you know you could go so broad as to cover everything equally but one should at least be open to this you know fruitful dialogue with other traditions I think you do
1: make the uh, the, the point that um, the different different philosophies uh, try to do different things uh, you make a, a, a beautiful distinction between um, uh, 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 philosophies that that tell you about how to live and philosophers that try to uh, explain how to know things, and, and 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 that that's a that's a nice a nice uh, sort of division distinction.
0: Well, I should say that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants who are standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, I mean, the way I sort of the only way to write a book as broad as this is you don't go out and seek to become an expert on all the world's philosophies. It doesn't work. You basically do some primary research, but you talk a lot to people who really know their stuff. So you know, I'm I'm drawing together work with different traditions. And the way-seeker, truth-seeker distinction is not one I I made up. Um, it goes back to Roger Ames and a collaborator who I'm shamefully not going to remember the name of. Um, yes, now it's not about, but it's not about kind of an either-or. I think this is, when you're doing comparative philosophy, any kind of comparative study actually, there's always that kind of temptation to think, ah, you know, in Asia it's like this, in Europe it's like that, and in Africa it's something else. To sort of imagine that it's all very different the opposite temptation is to say oh we're all doing the same thing aren't we really you know and to play down the differences i think the the, the more subtle thing is to appreciate that there were different emphases in different traditions, and so the way seeking, way seeking, and truth seeking distinction. It's more that in the West, it's the truth seeking aspect of philosophy which has come to be the most important. Perhaps in ancient Greece, it wasn't. Perhaps in ancient Greece, the way seeking thing was most important. Whereas in certainly in China, uh, the way seeking thing has always been paramount, and there has been a relative lack of interest in sort of truth for its own sake, if you like. I have to admit that um,
1: you know when I, when I was reading this, I, I, I would, ha- I'd have the reaction, the the, the the Western reaction of thinking, well, yeah, that's all very well, but the, you know that's not what I call philosophy. And then every time you took me into a subject, like, oh, well, i went, I see what you mean. <laughs> I mean, you know, and for instance, the you say certain Asian philosophies have their philosophy in poetry, and we think, well, poetry. But then again, <laughs> I think. Well, Wittgenstein, Nietzsche, mm. all that aphoristic mm. writing—we um, have a, a tradition, and and you that's one of your big themes, isn't it? That cut and dried—they're not—they're not divided perfectly. That it's, it's it's that emphasis of where we we look for.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right. So the, the line I always quote, I always end up talking about this. Whenever I talk about the book, I always quote Tom Kasulis, who's a very good comparative philosopher, who says. In terms of like what's background in one culture is foreground in the other, and vice versa, and that's what you have got to look out for. But I think the other point you were saying about having that reaction of I'm not really sure, etc., etc. You know, I think you know one shouldn't imagine that the end result is to sort of admire and like every single tradition equally. That would be undiscriminating. Actually, (laughs) yeah. At the end of the day, you have to kind of make your decisions, and I think different people. Will find different traditions more or less attractive. Well, you
1: say that, but this this was one of the things I keep coming back to because you present us with all sorts of um, issues that we might take on board in some Eastern philosophies. Uh, how how they look to respected or uh, intuitive thinkers rather than uh, somebody who's analytical as we would in the West. And I I, I keep I, a bit of my gorge rises, and I I keep wanting to say. But you need some criterion for deciding who which of these mm. um intuitive uh, seers or or um you know, mystics mm. um has got has got the point. Mm. Now, having said that, of course, this is what I'm talking about with your book. I, I then can see that what you, your response might be is that, well, it's not individualistic. the The community will figure out who who you'd respect, who you'd admire, whereas, from my Western point of view, I want I want to make the decision. I want to decide yeah. who I'm going to give the authority to.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, the 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 aspect of the ideas of seers who have sort of sort of mystical insight is is something that I personally have the the most difficulty with. I can try and sympathetically Good. understand where it comes from, but I can't ultimately buy into it. But I think that even when you, so what I find so useful about this is that even when you end up not ultimately agreeing, having that different light shone on your own tradition does make you see your own things in different ways and i think you picked up one of them very well there which is you know you come to realize just how much the western tradition emphasizes the autonomous personal intellect and how much that's actually a little bit absurd in a way because you know we we are all products of our cultures and we think what we do largely because of what our culture has taught us and how the culture thinks and you know we, we never approach anything in a vacuum. And I think that that's a really useful and sort of chastening thing to, to remind yourself of um, the extent to which we are all uh, you know, rooted in our communities and can't escape them in a way. I mean, you can, you can learn to gain a certain distance on your own tradition, you could learn to be more objective about it. But by the time you are fully formed intellect looking at the world, so much of the fundamentals about the, the way you look at things are kind of set. So it's 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 a very good check against the kind of hubris of thinking, you know, well my tradition is has basically got it right and the others have basically got it wrong, you know. <laughs> well, of course because um, well actually that that was another
1: response I had because uh, when when we talk about philosophy, of course w- we tend to think of it as being one kind of thing and you're trying to open open the word up a little bit. I I, I wondered if the word wisdom might not have been a useful one to introduce? Because whether that's what you're looking for or or what we're unpacking in in these Eastern
0: philosophies... Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why it's probably reluctant. Yeah, Yeah. One reason I was quite reluctant to do that. One is that there is this tendency to talk about wisdom traditions in a way which... Kind of degrades them. It's sort of like there's proper philosophy, and then there are kind of wisdom traditions. So there's that, It's all flaky, yeah. yeah. So there's that history of that. I think the other aspect is that it kind of perhaps overstates the extent to which uh, you know the, the way-seeking, truth-seeking distinction. Because if you take Indian philosophy, for example, in some ways you can say it's a wisdom tradition. On the other hand, it has got a very rich, developed logic, you know. And, and how does logic fit into a, a, a wisdom tradition in that sense? And, you know, and there are kind of, broadly speaking, you know, metaphysical views in, in other strands of philosophy as well. Again, Taoism has its ideas of perpetual change and flux and so forth. And although, you know, that's always kind of to be discovered in, in a name of wisdom in a way it doesn't kind of just purely reduce the wisdom aspect. So I, I think it's that, I think there's, the I can see what you're saying, but my reluctance to do that is because there's this history of using that term to kind of somehow, <laughs> to dismiss, yeah, yeah dismiss they're the, kind uh, of <laughs> mystical sagey type stuff, not philosophy. So just thinking about it all as variants of philosophy, it's more sort of equalizing, I think.
1: Well, then let's look at that, um, that question of the diversity. Um, I, I think most of us who give it any thought know what, western philosophy is but uh, you, you, one of the valuable things i get out of your book is to is to see the, the distinctions between indian chinese african um, islamic mm-hmm. and all so c- can we unpack that a little bit and can you take us on a quick
0: <laughs> a quick tour well uh, for well, instance yeah. i'm going to start you okay. off with
1: chinese mm. is it tends not to be uh, to do with uh, uh, another world it's not to yeah. do with religion yes, so, true, yeah. you, you you make clear yes. whereas some of the other um, yeah. traditions
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Chinese philosophy is extremely interesting. And the classical Chinese philosophy, going back to to, Confucius and Mencius, but also the uh, Taoist thinkers, Laozi, Zhuangzi, Um, it's a very, very rich tradition, a very continuous tradition as well. You know, I mean, like for for thousands of years, people have continued in the same broad vein. Uh, And that's a remarkable continuity. I think that's partly why people think of Confucianism as a religion, because it has that kind of unifying role but it's not a christian but it's not a religion at all exactly what's very interesting about it is that it's it's broadly speaking what you call naturalistic you know it doesn't really have much interest in the supernatural now there is talk of the way of heaven the way of heaven is a phrase that is used but i mean really it's not any kind of idea of a purposive thing a kind of intelligent god or or creator, or even it's, another place. No, no, heaven exactly. is the wrong word. Exactly, isn't it,
1: for that, for, it, I think the word is Tian.
0: Yeah, English, Tian. In, that's in, right. In so Chinese. it's more like the idea of like you know nature has a kind of an, an order. Nature has a kind of way, and the following the way of heaven is basically to to live in accordance with with nature in that sense. Um And I think that's very interesting because you know one of the reasons why people often dismiss non-Western philosophy as not philosophy is that they say you know, it's too tied up with, with religion. So oh, they look at Indian... We're going to come yeah, to that. Yeah, so Indian philosophy, true. I mean, it's very much tied up with uh, religion. <laughs> Islamic philosophy. Islamic philosophy, is, is the clue's in the name. Um, <laughs> but actually, Chinese philosophy, it just really isn't. I mean, arguably, the most naturalistic tr- tradition of thought in the world is the Chinese one, not the Western one. The Western one, for a large parts of its his, his history, have been very deeply infused with religion. I mean, Plato talked about the gods and, you know, when you study Plato today in university, they just sort of tend to skip over that. They sort of tend to treat those mentions of the gods as sort of like and metaphorical even worse, flourishes. Even
1: worse, your medieval Christians yeah. co-opted Plato and tried to turn him to a proto-Christian, well, exactly. which <laughs> does him an enormous damage. But I, I still have a, quite a lot of problem with Plato. Um, yeah, know,
0: well, I have with Plato and too, know. yeah. <laughs> but also, you know, Descartes, Look, I mean, a lot of these... Canonical thinkers were very deeply religious, and their religion clearly did inform their thinking. But, you know, we don't talk of them as Christian philosophers. We, we sort of, again, sort of bracket off the religion, because our narrative, the narrative we want to have, is that philosophy is a secular discipline. Uh, and, in fact, it's only been secular for a relatively short period of time, I think. Purely so, anyway.
1: So, then... We've gone uh, to religion, which is again a part of my resistance to this this sort of world philosophy thing. That so much of it, um, leaving aside China, is involved with religion. And um, and <clears throat> you know, the cards on the table. I'm a pretty straightforward materialist atheist. So I, I have a real problem with a, a, a with a philosophy. Who, which springs out of religion and whose purpose is to bolster religion. So let's talk about Islamic philosophy, where yeah. you know you, 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 you quote people uh, saying that um, it, it, it it has to be it has to spring from from the faith. It has to, and uh, you know the the Quran being the final revealed mm. word of God means that all all philosophy can be nothing more than an interpretation of that well my hackles are bound to rise at that point and and that's going to create a resistance to to looking at these things as what we would think or what I would think out of as proper philosophy
0: yeah I think that with the case of Islamic philosophy now again some people don't like to use that term they would say philosophy in the Islamic world because as soon as you call it Islamic philosophy then you know it seems to be owned by the religion but Actually, I think Islamic philosophy is probably more accurate. To be honest, um, there is even Avicenna, who's you know the great the, the greatest philosopher great of the Islamic you know. Golden Age, who clearly was a very clever philosopher and you know said interesting things and was developing Aristotelian ideas. It was always within the framework of the religion, in, in the same kind of way as the medieval scholastic philosophers were in the West. But I, I think this is somewhat contentious, but I don't think completely so there is a sense in which, in the Islamic world, philosophy has never separated itself from uh, religion in, and even has, hasn't even managed to distance itself from religion very much. And that does make it extremely difficult to approach as a non-Muslim, I think. I'm sure that if you study these texts very, very carefully, you'll find contributions to perennial philosophical debates which are worth looking at and are interesting. So... I'm glad that some people are looking at them for non-theological reasons, but it's so wrapped up with that, that I think unless you're going to be very determined to dig away at it, it's just simply not going to, you know, life is short and life is finite. If you're not a a believer in that faith, you you have to sort of unpack a lot of the theology before you can get to any philosophical gems. But
1: this then is going to lead us on to another important question. Um, And, I'm going to preface it by saying, you know, we, we, we referred earlier to the uh, to the way of living as opposed to the way of knowing things. Here. Um, um, and, and actually, I remember in, uh, in Karen Armstrong's book, The Case for God, mm. um, she, she actually suggests that Christianity lost its way when it, it stopped being the way you live mm. and started trying to be a system of thought. And she's absolutely right about that. I think Christianity made a terrible mistake trying to take on the Enlightenment to do its own game. But what what that does take me to is is it is it unreasonable of us is it wrong of us and again here i am from my perspective okay. to ask is are such things true i mean if if you're talking about uh, allah god or any or, or the you know the indian pantheon is it wrong to to want to have a scientific question are these things true or not obviously you could live your life according to them without it Sort of interfering with um, with with getting on with your life. but is it is it delinquent to <laughs> to wonder if if there is such a thing as truth?
0: No, no, I, not at all. I think it's far from delinquent. It's actually essential. I don't think you know you could be properly philosophical without having an interest in that question. The, the point is though, though the reason it gets complicated is that sometimes with that excessively sort of scientific worldview, which becomes scientistic... People end Ooh. up... Yep, we, it's, yeah, yeah. We, well, well, So I, I'm, I'm, I, Sorry, I, I'll I use the people. word scientific. You know, I think it is that worldview whereby actually it's not just that science is great and it's very powerful. It's that you end up saying that the only meaningful questions are scientific questions. And if something doesn't have a scientific answer, it's just, it's just like a pseudo question. Now, I think that's not true. In terms of religion, you've always got to... Uh, I think you do have to ask the question very clearly. What kind of claims are you making which are essentially kind of scientific mm. claims and, and what aren't you and you need to be clear about that because Karen Armstrong I, I'd love Karen Armstrong to be right I just suspect that she's actually describing the ideal religion the way she would like it to be and where it should be I'm not sure she's actually describing the way religion certainly is or even has been through the most of its history religion has most religions in Christianity in particular has made what are kind of factual claims about historical events and events to come in a in a future life. But it also does a lot of other things. So in, in, in a sense, that's where the philosophy of religion comes in. If you're to make sense of religion, part of what you have to do is try and disentangle claims about what is true or false empirically, factually, and other kinds of claims about how we ought to live, best way to live, orient ourselves to the universe, and so forth. Those kind of questions, questions of value, I just don't think are scientific in the same way. There is no science of right and wrong. There's a science of pain and pleasure and there's a science of the evolution of moral belief and so forth. There's, and there's a science of how the brain works. But actually, ultimately determining what is good, what is bad, right or wrong, that's not a scientific question. It's a different kind of question.
1: No, I'll tell you what kind of question it is. It's a cultural question and, and, and for me. That that's the distinction. Of course, not all not all important questions are scientific. Some are cultural, and and that brings us back, doesn't it, to to what your book's about in a way. Because these are these are different cultural approaches to um, how to think about life and the world. And
0: well, yes, but if you say it's cultural, I, 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 I suppose I want to know exactly what you mean by that. Because if by, <laughs> if by cultural you mean it's something which only emerges because there are such things as humans in society. That's right but if by cultural well, you that mean, is what I mean. If, but if by culture you mean which you may not mean that these things are the answers to these questions are completely relative to the historical contingencies of the culture you're in. I don't think that is true. Now I think that what is true is that as a matter of fact, different cultures have tended to highlight certain things and overlook others and that's why there's diversity. But the idea that yeah, that ultimately um, the only you can't settle issues of right or wrong because of cultural diversity is is far too pessimistic, and actually, what you can learn, we, we can actually, there's a lot of overlap in cultures for a start, and. Uh, things are framed in different ways, but the amount of potential agreement is extremely huge. The, 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 UN, the UN's Universal Declaration on Human Rights is a very good example of this because people will often say, our oh, rights, it's that Western thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Western ideal. They don't have rights elsewhere. Well, when they were putting together that charter, they found that it wasn't a hard sell to the non-Western countries as a whole, the hard sell was to the communist countries, actually, and uh, South Africa, I believe. Ooh, but yeah. um, a lot of the developing world and Asia were perfectly happy with this. It, yeah, the, the language of rights may not have been in their vernacular, but they could understand them in such a way that they could fit them into their to their worldview. And uh, so, uh, again, I think that when you when you actually dig away, you find that there's quite a lot of possibility for a lot more common ground than, than we might think. That's got to be the hope. There's one more
1: thing I want to touch on, which is, um, the relationship of, of the individual mm. to all of these matters. Mm. And you, you, have another a nice, nice distinction, um, between, uh, intimacy, integrity. Another borrowed
0: uh, one. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, All the best stuff stolen. <laughs> it was new
1: to me. So, and, and, and you, you know, you, you yeah, you my up a, a little bit there. So, um, can you give us a quick mm. a quick overview of that of of what that distinction? Well, is? Well,
0: I mean, it's one of the most useful ones I came across, and again, it's this, this again to Tom Casoulis, who I mentioned earlier. Um, now, this again is to do with sort of orientations of thinking, which really affect everything pretty much. But perhaps it's clearest in the example of how we conceive of ourselves. So, I think the language, I think his choice of terms is perhaps slightly unfortunate because it's not intuitive, but you can get there. By integrity, we don't mean this idea of moral integrity. Think of integrity in the sense of an object having integrity, meaning it is entire to itself. It needs nothing else. So it's separate and discrete. So in the sort of the, the dominant Western way of thinking for the last few hundred years at least has been this integrity culture where by the way we think about ourselves and everything is as discrete individual entities which are only secondarily in relations to each other. So in science, you know, it's the reduction to the atom and the subatomic particle. In in nutrition, it's breaking things down to proteins, fats, carbohydrates, vitamins. It's that nutrientist approach of trying to sort of break things down. And in terms of individuals, is the the individual is the fundamental unit of society. It goes back to the idea of. Descartes, that is, cogito ergo sum. You are an individual thinking, indivisible entity. Society is a collection of these things. So in a way, the the person who summed up this view most accurately was that famous philosopher Margaret Thatcher, (laughs) who said, you may remember there's no such thing as society. There are only individuals, men and women, families, and so forth. And, you know, people often say, oh, well, she wasn't really saying there's no such thing as society. She was simply making a point that society is what happens when these different elements come together. But that's precisely the point. That is the, the integrity orientation. Now, the intimacy orientation sees the foregrounded thing here is that actually nothing exists in isolation. Things are only what they are because of how they stand in relations to other things. So in a way, there is no such thing as the individual human being because to be a, there are no human beings without there being a species of human beings. There's no being the individual you are Uh, without being a member of a particular family, a community, and so forth. And it also develops in science as well, actually. Interestingly enough, a lot of the most recent developments in science have been to kind of, like, balance that reductionist uh, integrity way of looking at things, to look more at the way systems behave. So systems biology, for example, and complexity theory. Now, I think these are really important because the thing is, they're kind of like two ways of looking at the world which... They're not mutually exclusive, right? And there are times where it's very beneficial to adopt one, and there are times when it's very beneficial to adopt the other. And probably we all of us need both, and we do all of us use both. So again, although the dominant way of thinking in the West is to do with the individual, when we lose someone close to ourselves, it's very common to say, I've lost a part of me. Mm. and that's a way of thinking which is more to do with the intimacy way of thinking that that thing us being fundamentally interconnected and so once you sort of start start seeing things in those terms it becomes very very useful and i think it helps you to sort of like i think recognize the extent to which we kind of systematically uh focus too much on the Integrity aspect and sort of miss the elements of intimacy, which is if, if I know I'm going on but I think it's actually politically important as well because People often complain that the problem with society today is it's become too individualistic, etc, etc And I think that's partly true and it, but it's not about giving up our ideas of individuality It's about recognizing the other side of the coin.
1: You have a beautiful illustrative example of this you uh, say that uh, when, when you show a picture to Americans they see what's in the foreground but if you say it to the Japanese, they'll see the background a lot more than uh, Americans, yeah. all, because it, the relations between things matter more in their culture.
0: Yeah, this is. I mean, this is work in psychology. It's not like all these things. There are people who can test it, but I, I must admit, when I, I'm fairly persuaded of this. Yeah, it just seems that the the attention to foreground, and the, the elements at the front, is just something that people notice much more. And in, in Japanese, and it's purely cultural, there's nothing biological about it. So, if your born Japanese parents grow up in America, you have the American way of looking at things, and vice versa. Um, yeah. Well, Julian, um, uh, you have expanded my horizons, and for that, I'm
1: extremely grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, it's been great talking. Uh, the book is How the World Thinks A Global History of Philosophy by Julian Bergini, and it's Granter and it's £20. Pounds thank
0: you very much thank you cheers that was the books podcast with Tim Haig the books podcast is produced by Green Shoot you can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com